there will be spoilers, 100 films, 100 podcasts. My name is Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And we are back with number one on the AFI Top 100 list of American films. That's 1941 Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane. Which makes this episode 100 the final episode. The final one. Can you believe we're here? It's unbelievable in a lot of ways. I mean, you look at the list and you say, oh, well, we can get there. But the reality is that it was five years or something. Yeah. Long time. A long time in the making. So there will be one final rundown for we can do our dark duty and end the ritual of madness that is the rundown. <laughs> but this episode devoted to Citizen Kane. So had you seen it before? No, this one I had not seen before. Very much looked forward to, though. Very much looked forward to. Impossible not to look forward to as it sits there on its perch at number one as we Mm -hmm. slowly ascend the mountain to it. But, of course, I hadn't seen it, have heard a lot about it. But maybe we should talk about that a little bit after a plot synopsis. Citizen Kane is the story of Charles Foster Kane, who at the start of the film dies at his sprawling, incomplete mansion named Xanadu. As he dies, he whispers the word Rosebud and drops a snow globe, shattering it. A newsreel description of his life ensues, proving to be a work in progress. The producer is unhappy with the final product and sends reporter Jerry Thompson to discover the meaning of of Rosebud. Thompson begins interviewing people who knew Kane, including his wife and his caretaker. He learns that Kane was sent away to live with his banker uh, and caretaker, Walter Parks Thatcher, after Kane's mother discovers a gold mine on her property. The young Kane, angry at being sent away, attacks Thatcher with his sled. Many years later, Kane comes into his trust fund and uses it to buy a newspaper. That is not an individual newspaper, but a newspaper company, where he engages in sensational journalism, attacking Thatcher's business interests. But due to the stock market crash, he is forced to sell a controlling interest in his newspaper empire to Thatcher. Thompson also interviews Mr. Bernstein, who was Kane's business manager. Bernstein explains how Kane hired the best journalists and manipulated public opinion around the Spanish-American War, opportunistically rising in power. He also recounts Kane's first marriage to Emily Norton, the niece of a president of the United States. Thompson tracks down Kane's ex-best friend, Jedediah Leland, who lives in a retirement home. Leland explains the downfall of Kane's first marriage and the start of his affair with Susan Alexander. The affair is exposed by his opponent in the race for New York governor, and the scandal that ensues ends Kane's political career and first marriage. In order to mitigate his own embarrassment, he forces Susan into an opera career that she is not talented enough for and doesn't really want. Leland, working for the paper, writes an honest review of her debut, which he is unable to finish. Kane finishes it and fires his friend. Thompson then visits Susan, who is now an alcoholic with a nightclub. She explains how she tried to kill herself to escape Kane's opera plans for her and how Kane isolated her at Xanadu. She eventually leaves him, sending him into a violent rage. He destroys her room, but does not smash a snow globe. As his servants look on, he takes the snow globe and whispers, Rosebud. Thompson decides that the meaning of Rosebud will forever remain unknown. 
at Xanadu, all the extravagant possessions of Cain are boxed up or destroyed. One of the staff members throws a sled into the furnace as trash. It burns up, uh, and as it burns, the brand of the sled is revealed to the audience. You guessed it. Rosebud. Didn't need to guess it, because that's the one thing I knew about this film going into it. <laughs> oh, really? That it was the sled? Yeah. All along? Which, I don't know if that made the experience worse or better. I can't even remember ever being told that. I feel like it's one of those cultural osmosis things that we started the podcast for. Mm -hmm. And it just sleds Rosebud. And that's that's what I knew about Citizen Kane. For for some reason, I had this film and um, the Holocaust one, uh, Schindler's List, mixed up in my head. Probably because schindler's list has the little girl with the red coat mm -hmm. uh and this has rosebud and so i kept thinking isn't there something with a girl a little girl and i was like but that no that's citizen or not citizen kane that's um schindler's <laughs> list it. uh right and they're both in black and white right um so i sort of had some sort of knowledge i i knew it was not what we expected it to be uh, but I didn't know exactly what it was until the very end. Okay. Well, so was that shocking to you? Was that enlightening? No, I I think that it, it made sense. It very much made sense. I think that, um, you know, this film throws a lot at you. There, it, it, It's got such a pace to it right the, like it, it's it's like it's constantly moving I, I felt like i couldn't look away from the screen for so much of this film because so much is happening visually um and i guess and plot wise as well that by the time that that came around i was like it of course it's cyclical of course it's about his childhood that's the only thing that could make sense yeah so i read roger ebert's like retrospective of it obviously he wasn't reviewing mm -hmm. it in 1941 and he was right. talking about he could never really pin down the order of the film in his mind, no matter how many times he's seen it and how many times he's gone frame by frame with different film classes with it. Yeah, yeah. Because it just feels so slippery in that way. I think because you also have that news on the march, which is like the mm -hmm. first 12 minutes of the movie, really, of it just kind of jumping around his life. And then we backtrack and fill in those gaps later yeah. as we go. Which, so his first wife, I thought... She died in a car accident with the son? She did. That's why well, that's she doesn't get divorced. Well, she leaves him. I don't know that they're necessarily... Div I guess it's either right after they're divorced or she leaves him and they're going to get divorced and then she dies in that car crash. Okay. But we. But like that is very much glossed over. Because um, they say it in the news on the march and I was like... Okay, so she dies tragically. That's sad. They probably loved each other. And then they're like, oh, and he got divorced. You're like, wait, I thought she was dead. And then you see the, like the growing coldness between them. And you see mm -hmm. that final scene. And I was like, okay, where does he like, does he have someone crash the car? It seems awfully convenient that they have this big schism and then she just dies with the son to clean up that side of the story. It, it does. I, I think that's one of the few things that that still kind of stuck with me after the after it ended that I was like, what? So we really aren't just going to deal with the fact that she died in a car crash like that. I, I guess for for Kane, she died the minute she didn't worship him anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, or 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 left him, which 
I mean, he's we we should probably talk about him as a character. I mean, this idea that he desires love from people, right? Yeah. In fact, that's my pivotal scene. Is old Jed, literally old Jed. Yeah. Talking about who Kane is and how he wants everyone's love because he's not really willing to give it, but he wants to sh- give them all the stuff so that he gets their love, right? He thinks he deserves it. So yeah, yeah. we'll play this brief scene. It goes on a little bit longer, but this is, I think, the most poignant discussion of Kane as a person. I can remember absolutely everything, young man. That's my curse. That's one of the greatest curses ever inflicted on the human race, memory. I was his oldest friend, and as far as I was concerned, he behaved like a swine. Not that Charlie was ever brutal. He he just did brutal things. Maybe I wasn't his friend, but if I wasn't, he never had one. (laughs) Maybe I was uh, what you nowadays call a a stooge. Mr. Leland, you were Uh, going to say something about Rosebud. Good cigar, do you? I've got a young physician here who thinks I'm going to give up smoking. Oh, I'm afraid I haven't. Sorry. I changed the subject, didn't I? What a disagreeable old man I have become. (laughs) You're a reporter. You want to know what I think about Charlie Kane. Well, (laughs) I suppose he had some private sort of greatness, but he kept it to himself. He never gave himself away. He never gave anything away. He just uh, left your tip. Hmm? (laughs) He had a generous mind. I don't suppose anybody ever had so many opinions. But he never believed in anything except Charlie Kane. He never had a conviction except Charlie Kane in his life. I suppose he died without one. It's been uh, pretty unpleasant. <clears throat> of course, uh, a lot of us check out without having any special convictions about death, but we do know what we leave, and we do believe in something. <laughs> okay, so again, the reason I chose this scene is Jed just lays it out for us, right? They've yeah. fallen out as friends, which we'll learn later in the film as it goes on but he's right about kane and everyone kind of echoes this after the scene so i think this is kind of the originary point for us to think oh this is after kane has lost his i don't know if it's like shell of idealism or if it was just he's been he's matured in the wrong sense of the term Mm -hmm. right past his idealist phases and now is like just cynical and looking out for himself and and trying to buy people's love mm-hmm. yeah i mean it, it's a strange thing right and i guess we can i guess we trace it back if we're gonna if we're gonna buy what the film suggests to us we have to trace it back to his mother right and mm-hmm. and the and rosebud right i mean this is the thing that he whis he whispers it more than once not just at his deathbed right um and and he does. He showers Susan with things so that she will love him. I mean that that is that is exactly it. He does all these things for the ostensibly for the people, right? But he misunderstands what the people want, and Susan's a microcosm of that, right? He misunderstands yeah. what she wants, even though she tells him this is not what I want. Yeah, yeah, and well, and that also too is like his whole thing with Susan is this weird, selfish you know uh descent in into like i don't know or, or de- devolution or something um well we're seeing him really at his worst right 
all the veneers are stripped away and he is now unabashedly just doing things for himself for what he wants. And I think there's the scene where she's taking the singing lessons. Mm-hmm. The teacher, by the way, is awesome. He does a great oh, performance. Fantastic this. performance. And then she's like, I don't want to do this. And he says, I wouldn't expect you to understand or something like, I don't want to justify my reasons to you. Like I have my reasons and I'm satisfied not explaining them to you or something like that. Yeah. And it just really illustrates that, well, he didn't give a shit about her. She's an ornament. Yeah. And however he wants to use that ornament, the ornament shouldn't ask how to be used. Right. And, and the, and the thing is, right, is that he, I really think he does this whole thing. I mean, this is why you have that famous clapping scene right at the, at the opera after Mm -hmm. her terrible performance. It's that he has to, he can't be embarrassed. He he's already been embarrassed because of his because he loses his political career. And they keep mm-hmm. saying he they the um what is it Jedediah or maybe uh, Bernstein keeps saying he lost everything. He lost everything. He didn't lose everything. <laughs> I mean, as we see at the end, he still has immense wealth. Um, but but I think it's that he loses everything that that matters, right? Yeah, Bernstein and Leland don't have that obscene wealth, right? We already know that Jedediah Leland never came from any kind of money. And so all that money is inconsequential, right? Leland even tears up the $25,000 check that Kane sends him as severance, basically, for being a friend, really. (laughs) Friend severance. Right. Which, man, I I wish I could get some friend severance. We'll talk about it. (laughs) So... I want to talk about the real-life inspiration of the film. I think we'd be very remiss if we don't introduce William Randolph Hearst into this conversation now. Yeah, yeah. So, based pretty closely on the life of William Randolph Hearst, I just judging by his Wikipedia page, right? He had a Xanadu-esque place in, I think it was, was it California or Florida? Uh, I think it's Florida in the film. I don't know about Hearst. So, it's probably California for Hearst. Yeah. And he had a political career that kind of went somewhere than nowhere and he switched party affiliations a couple times as we see in the, the newsreel for mm-hmm. Kane. So a lot of all the things put together and also Hearst knew about the making of this film and was trying to like stop it from happening the entire time, trying mm-hmm. to buy people out, trying to buy the film and destroy it. At one point someone warned Orson Wells, who plays Citizen Kane, that Hearst had paid a naked woman to stay in his, his hotel and jump into his arms and the photographer to photograph it like right at the moment and make a scandal. So Wells like slept somewhere else that night. But So we don't actually know if that was true or if that was going to happen. But right. So there's a lot of stuff, either real or imagined, that Hearst was doing to try to prevent this film being made because, I mean, it had the ring of truth to it, obviously. Yeah. And there's a real teardown of this like, shell of a man a hollow man that's just extraordinarily wealthy whose family is still wealthy off of this guy's money right Mm -hmm. his granddaughter is patty hurst and yeah yeah the daughter is lydia hurst who's now married to chris hardwick and they're both obscenely rich yeah i mean so it's that old american money and he I think it's important that we recognize like this has its roots in reality. This is not just a fiction story. It, yeah. It's, it was closer than I thought it would be to the reality of this person. Interesting. Cause I didn't read much about the Hearst stuff. I, I sort of let that be. Um, so that is kind of fascinating, right? That this is sort of a ripped from the headlines sort of film, right? Yeah. Uh, 
which feels very kind of American, at least in the in the tradition of like American literature, early American literature. Uh, you know, when we think about American Renaissance and all of that, I mean, all of these things are sort. I mean, so the Scarlet Letter, right, is the same sort of setup that it has some supposed historical accuracy, right, uh, or historical inspiration. And the same goes for you know any of these big things. Moby Dick is this pastiche of all those things. So to see this as as a sort of fictionalized version of an American's life, it feels very in step with what great American storytelling looks like. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, Orson Welles would be very conscious about that going into it because this was his first film. Yeah. And he had license to do whatever he wanted to do and originally was going to do Heart of Darkness, which, oh my gosh, how incredible would that have been? But we have Apocalypse now, so I'm content. (laughs) And ended up not doing it because he wanted to do like all like first-person camera stuff, stuff that had been probably even more innovative at the time than mm. stuff he did in Citizen Kane, which is saying a lot. Yeah. But it just didn't work out or something the studio didn't want it. So he chose to do this. And so I think that can't be accidental then that he chose to do this teardown effect, this complete demolishing of a person. Yeah. To show just how shallow this person is and what money does. And I think Ebert did the truism, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely because we right. see a young fresh-faced Orson Welles, Citizen Kane, trying to be an idealist, wants to have a newspaper, wants to tell the news, has these list of principles, and then slowly, 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 we see all of those stripped away until it's just transactional, where he has money, and so he thinks he can purchase anything he wants, and he doesn't have to give anything, right? Every person who he becomes any way close to throughout the film talks about how he's unwilling to give anything. Even though he showers them with gifts all the time, he right. never gives anything, right? There's nothing of himself that ever goes to that relationship. Yeah, and and it, it is interesting to see that descent as as a sort of like spiteful act, right? Because he becomes... The, I think a lot of this really gets kicked off by his disgust with Thatcher, Right. So he starts Mm -hmm. to do these things. He starts to report all these things that are um, antithetical to Thatcher. Right. In order to take him down because he doesn't like what he stands for. But I think it becomes pretty clear that it's not just what Thatcher stands for after a certain point. It's it's to get back at Thatcher. It's hitting him with the sled. But it's the you know, the money version of it. Right. Um, Until he's forced to have Thatcher buy him out basically. And then I think from there, it's really downhill. I mean, everything you're right. I mean, his, we, we see that his marriage is this monotonous, uh, it's, you know, they have that great montage with him and his wife at the, at the breakfast table, um, in their fucking mansion. Uh, Mm -hmm. and it, and it just falls apart. Right. Um, and then by then he's, he's hanging out with Susan because he met her and she had a toothache. And I, and I wasn't sure when we hear Susan for the first time sing in her little apartment. I was like, is this supposed to be good? This... I thought it was fine. It's a hell of a lot better than I can sing. Yeah, She's not singing opera in her apartment. It's a different kind of style, right? It's still, I think, an opera. It's the same song she's singing. Yes. But it's not in the same operatic style. So she's just kind of singing. It's like, that's fine, you know? Yes. for At home, totally great, right? 
Uh, but then it becomes, but I mean, everything, right. Is to, is to like prove people wrong and to spite people. The whole opera side plot, right. Is because he gets caught with her and he's like, I, it's, you know, they made fun of him in the newspapers. They right. called her a singer quote unquote in singer. Quotations. Yeah, exactly. And so he's like, well, I will make her a singer. Just like I, I will, I, he doesn't like Thatcher. So I will make people dislike Thatcher too. I'll take him down. Yeah. And that's actually another potential pivot I looked at is when a young Kane is talking to Thatcher about how he's working against his own interests. He's of two people, right? He's of two minds where he says, part of me is this stakeholder in the trusts and wants to give you $1,000 to have a meeting about it, right? And the other part of me is this idealist who wants to burn it all down. Mm-hmm. So already you're seeing this idea of duality, but it really just feels like duplicity that he's got this money it's like a cognitive dissonance right he's got this money he knows where it comes from it's what's funding him to be able to do this but he's still gonna fight like the power so to speak even though he's the power right it's a kind of disingenuous thing you see it's a lot of well i don't want to characterize too much but a lot of people i feel like of our generation who are like yeah man i can't believe like the man you gotta fight against him and it's like and you're living off your parents like trust fund right, right. yes saying, huh? The, right, this sort of hypocrisy of it. The because because that's part of like I mean, if we think about this as an American film, as like the, you know what is being held up as the number one American film, right? There is absolutely something about the American ethos that is about rebellion, that is about fighting the power, right? That that comes mm-hmm. out of the the birth of America, the idea of revolution, right? It yeah. it, it is a sort of like liberal. Uh, approach a you know in turn not necessarily political parties but right the the sort of larger sense of liberal versus conservative right revolution versus status quo so there Mm -hmm. is i think a desire especially wrapped up in masculinity to be able to say i fought against the establishment right i fought against the you know the the man um even if that's not true it's we, there, there's a drive to do that because that's american you know what i mean yeah i think that's very much bound up in this film if this is supposed to be the er american film just by its placement not necessarily in its construction i don't think orson welles said i'm gonna write the great american novel but it's gonna be a film right i don't think that's right. intent but i think it captured people's hearts and minds because one falls in this great literary tradition of contemporary issue just you know like ripped from the headlines like you said mm-hmm. but on top of that it's about individualism it's about making of oneself so yeah i mean i think it's attractive for all those reasons but it also subverts all of those things and says yeah we all we all like to cling to this narrative but watch how it slowly turns on you mm-hmm. and and throughout the viewing of this film i felt like are we supposed to be on kane's side and I think the film leaves that an open question for a long time. Yeah. Because he's our protagonist. You're already going to be biased in his favor. But on top of all the American ideals that we've talked about as an American viewing the film. But then it becomes, should become unequivocally clear that Kane's a life that you don't want. Yeah. I mean, I th- I think this is, especially in the top 10 of this list, this is a repeated sort of theme right which is to say 
that like look at look at the godfather which we just watched which i think again a lot of people think of as this sort of like the the mafia movie right um Mm -hmm. and i think so many people have dreams of being in the mafia uh you know or or living that life and the film shows you that like it's impossible to be a good person and do all that right like we see the descent of a man just like uh gone with the wind if we throw away uh or if we that is uh don't if we don't focus on all of the weird um confederate you know um you know backward looking the first like half of the film where yeah it's just like let's talk about how cool the confederacy was right all of that sort of uh you know propaganda confederacy propaganda when you put that you know sort of to the side the real drama of that film is the same thing it's a woman driven to the edge who uh you know we we watch her sort of descent uh as she tries to cling to power and 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 money and and whatever and the, and it's the same thing right at Lawrence of Arabia right we see a man descend and so i think that this there there is something really attractive in watching you know, a good person or, or what we would think of as a good person, or at the very least, even just a person who is a stand in for us. Yeah. Someone we identify with good or at good or bad. Right. And to watch them s- sort of sink to, you know, to, to the depths of depravity. Um, and, and I don't know, there's something attractive about that because this is, this, we just keep seeing it in these top 10, Movies and throughout the whole list, right? I mean, that's all over the list itself. Goodfellas, uh, th- you know, that sort of thing. But still. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. I think that makes a very coherent argument for what the top 10 particularly is, but also more broadly what this list is trying to do. Yeah. I think we should now turn to our three questions because we're running out of time, and I still think we've got plenty to talk about. Yeah, there's a lot. Before that, however, let's talk about Anchor. All right, this is the last time we have to do this, right? Ah, uh, there's a rundown. Ah, well, damn. Well, yeah, but that's more. before the episode. We don't do we don't do a mid break in there. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, Ethan, our Matt. first question: What do we owe to this film? What do we owe to this film? Well, I, I probably think, nothing, right? Probably very little. I think that you know what stands out to me most of all is the way this film looks. I think that the visual language of this film is something that almost every probably every film on this list has has aped at some point these sort of beautifully staged what do they call it i think it's deep focus is is what they call it yeah uh where you've got the whole thing is in focus the all the way to the front from the or all the way from the front to the back so that there are these stage pictures where these mise-en-scenes where you have three characters in the room at length and the and the camera asks you because it's that deep focus it asks you to look at everything and not just to look at one thing right like it it, mm-hmm. it it guides your eye in such a strange way and and the way that everything is framed so many other films look like imitations of this yeah and it's something i think it's very easy to take for granted in today's film because we have cameras that can do things that cameras in the past could only dream of yeah and it's very it's very commonplace i think well of course we've got dynamic camera shots where we're switching between perspectives and going close-ups on faces but it's 1941 think about the films we see 
around this time and before this time mm-hmm. in which not a whole lot is going on. It's like it looks like a play yeah. being done on a stage. But, of course, Orson Welles didn't pioneer this. It was John no. Ford that yeah. he was working with but also emulating his films. And we see a lot of that, too. I think, actually, I was watching Kurosawa film again, the sequel to Yojimbo Sanjuro, mm-hmm. and talking about how Kurosawa was really inspired by Ford also. Yeah. So this this originates a little bit earlier still, but Citizen Kane, like you said, it really popularizes that deep focus. It does a lot of dynamic shots. Every camera angle, at least in the early goings, look up at people like yes. Kane. And they look down at people like Susan. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's a lot of this visual language going on, which I really think is subtle, right? If you're not really looking for it, you're going to miss it. And I did miss a lot of it in my viewing, and I had to read a lot about it after the fact, and I really felt that's right. Gained a lot of respect for it as a piece of art, right? as a technical masterpiece. Yeah. Because I th- I think your your comparison is right. We've seen so many films that come. We literally, we you and I have watched many films from this era, and they in comparison they are static, right? Mm-hmm. There, the, it, 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 what's happening here in comparison to these films is amazing, right? Um, there's every frame in this film helps to tell the story. Every shot in this film, every every placement of the camera, right? As you pointed out, you look up onto Kane and down onto other people, right? The way that you the way that people are stacked in these deep focus um shots. I mean, everything is there. It there's so much visual input. I I felt kind of overwhelmed honestly watching it because it it moves so quickly and people talk so quickly and there's so much to see. Um that it, it yeah I, it's wild and i and i think that there that has such a lasting impact and it, again as you pointed out it's not new necessarily um but but being sort of smashed together like that and used in such a way it becomes so effective and i think that that's just it's so easy to see how that's been you know aped in every other film we've watched yeah and say a little bit more about things being aped in other films. I have a, a list of things that I thought of as we were watching the film. First, like the newsreel and him kind of being interjected into all these historical moments. Yeah. Felt like a very Forrest Gump yes. thing to me. The idea of like news all the time and sensational news felt very network to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The boxes at the end is totally Raiders of the Raiders Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark, yes. <laughs> the clapping thing, of course, I remember from the Rob Cantor Shia LaBeouf yes. live video, which I rewatched last night just out of for fun. And then I also, weirdly enough, feel like Susan is like the vocal inspiration for the Harley Quinn character. Oh, really? It it seems like exactly that. I don't know. So just some musings I had about. In addition to all of the big stuff, here's some little little nods to things that come later, right? Everyone's trying to tip their hat to Citizen Kane in some yeah. way. Well, and I, I thought, too, a lot about – I read on the internet that so many of the shots uh, show the ceiling of sets. Like, they made ceilings for each set, which you don't tend to do um, unless you right. need to. 
um, which adds this like huge sense of scale. And it made me think of The Shining, uh, which also has that sort of massive feel. And and I think we do get to see some ceilings in in uh, in The Shining, but I, I maybe I'm wrong. Um, no, we definitely do, but. Because I think there's like ballroom stuff. You look at look up and see a lot of fanciness. Yeah, and that really I think lends. I mean, even in certain scenes where I was like that, and maybe it was because it's old, but certain rooms felt like they were very claustrophobic because the ceiling was so low, and then other ones felt huge and gaping and cavernous. And I mean, even that I think I bet if we went back and and tracked that and followed that through each uh, scene, I, I would be. Willing to bet good money that the size of the room is is thematized, right? Is is mm-hmm. representing what's going on in those scenes. You know what I mean? Well, the the best idea of that is him having that that marriage dispute in Xanadu, and mm-hmm. they're like, I guess you'd call it a living room, and there he's sitting in this like basically a throne in the middle of the room and she's over there playing with a jigsaw and they're just like shouting at each other about small things because this place is so huge yes the fireplace i sat there olivia was on her phone but was in the room and i was like holy shit look at that fireplace because it looks like a forced perspective shot like he like the logs even look huge um Mm -hmm. and then olivia looked up and the scene had changed and uh his wife was sitting in front of it susan and she's like holy shit look at that huge fireplace and i was like i uh, yes i just said (laughs) like yes it's huge man um you're right and so i think there's just even using setting as as part of the storytelling here uh in such a masterful way is is something that we should strive to imitate i think it's just good storytelling so we should ask our second question does this film hold up? Well, and I think the answer here is is absolutely. I think that, and I, I watched this on HBO Max. It's on there right now, so it was in you know high def and all that. And it's it's hard to stress how good this film looks in in high definition. Um, did you have a similar experience with that? I think I had a different experience. So. A couple things go into this. One, I think it's always important to keep in mind, Orson Welles was 26 mm-hmm. when he was writing, directing, and starring in this film. Yeah, so, a kid. Huge accomplishment. And it is very beautiful looking. I think immediately from Xanadu, you think, oh, how incredible onward. I think all that's really well done. I think it's shot very well. I think we've talked enough about that. I think the acting is very strange. And that's something that Ebert talks about in his mm-hmm. review is that it comes from a different time. So, yeah, it feels a little stilted, a little slower. Yeah. Everyone's kind of a little more strained and melodramatic, which sometimes I like, sometimes I don't. And maybe it just wasn't working for me in this viewing. I, I have to be honest, it was very hard for me to watch this movie. Like, I was not bored, but just stuck on slow motion or something. I could not get through this it was just taking forever to muscle my way through the film and it's a film it's like well certainly i respect it but i feel like you show this to anyone today i don't think you're gonna get much much love for it i don't know i had i feel like i had a very opposite experience i was like like i said before i felt kind of physically overwhelmed at times because i was like there's so much to to look at and i felt like it moved at, at a at like a breakneck speed um, 
So that's weird that we had that very sort of different experience of it. Well, I think it's understandable when you when you consider this is supposed to be the greatest film of all time. Yeah, yeah. There's a Nothing lot of can hold up to that. Right. I I think you're right. Um, it is sort of like a a burden placed upon it that you're right. How does anybody live up to that? How does anything live up to that? When people refer to stuff as the Citizen Kane of X, like right. you didn't expect Citizen Kane, and we've been doing it for five years, so. You know, we always knew Citizen Kane was number one, mm-hmm. and we always were expecting it. And so after we keep creeping up, it feels like ever closer. For the most part, I feel like the films got better as we got higher. Some notable exceptions to that. Mm-hmm. And so we finally arrive, and I think, okay, I'm ready for it. I'm ready to be blown away. And of course, nothing can hold up to those expectations. I... But yeah, I mean, I don't particularly like the movie. It's it's not something. I, there's no other way around it. I just I didn't really like it. I understand why it's so influential. I understand why it deserves to be noteworthy. I I think we can debate about whether it should be number one, but to me, it's not a film that's as engaging as something like The Godfather. Really, the Godfather Part Two, Casablanca. Those films I really, really love. And even though I've seen them, well, Casablanca I've seen like three or four times now, I still feel riveted every time because I love the dialogue. I love what's going on. Even though I know the plot, I love all the intricacies it has in it. Whereas Citizen Kane, it's like a lot of it was like, wait, what's happening? Why is this? I thought she died. Okay. Yeah, the nonlinear. The nonlinear narrative, I think, does at times hinder more than it helps especially at the very beginning um when you we talk to his alcoholic wife first and then and it it, but then we don't actually get her story until so it does jump or it is hard to sort of keep straight in your head where we are in time and why everything is happening and because i think things happen so quickly um I feel like some scenes are cut a little too early, too, so you don't really get a chance to get your bearings, which maybe speaks to what you're talking about. I thought the, like, weird Thatcher stronghold library thing was, like, more confusing to me. Yeah. Like, wait, what is he doing? Why are these people here? So, I mean, it it really, I don't want to give the impression that it was like, oh, I just couldn't figure out what was going on, because for the most part, I was aware of what was happening and what was going on and why it was happening. It just felt like... I wasn't invested. Maybe it's because you're not supposed to like Kane at a certain point, but I don't know. I mean, I had what I think was a reasonably good viewing experience. Like there wasn't a lot of circumstances surrounding me where I thought I can't enjoy a film like this at this time, but it just wasn't what I expected and it wasn't what I wanted, I guess. Yeah. I know. I can, I can understand that. Um, because I think, I think that's a feeling that I've had for a, a, a bunch of films on this list. Um, and maybe a little bit to this one as well, although, uh, I mean, I guess maybe I, it, there's a lot of grains of salt to be taken with this film because it's the, supposed to be the past, right? It's supposed to be number one. Um, mm-hmm. But I but I think there was a lot of stuff where um, where we go back and look at these films that are supposed to be so important and so groundbreaking. And, and there are a lot of them. At, I mean, we can say it now because we've seen them all. There are a lot of boring films on this list. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Um, and and perhaps this one 
suffers from some of the problems that some of the ones that we found were, you know, we there there are some boring things, you know. You know, so I have one more thing to say, but I think maybe it's best to say it in the third question. That's okay. better there. Yeah. So our third question is, do we care about this film? I'm, I'm going to say yes, if only for, because I think what really struck me about this film isn't the, isn't the plot itself and the actual narrative of this man. I think it's, I think it's the storytelling. I think it's the way that they use this technology of film they, they use it to tell a story that otherwise I think is in general kind of bland. And we've seen uh, versions of this story in the last like 10 movies, basically. Um, but I think it's it's the how that how they do it. Right. Rather than the, the sort of like what they're telling mm-hmm. that does it for me. I think that is I, I was really taken aback at at the sort of mastery of the, the medium um so for that alone i'm gonna say i care about it so i think you're exactly right about that that's actually the point i was gonna make it may be a different angle so i agree that it's not so much the content that's of value here that we care about because at the end of the day it is you're from the headline story that isn't it's compelling like it's not it's not that the story is boring Mm -hmm. it's just that it doesn't follow the same dramatic arc that we experience in literature in quite the same way right we, we talked about how the descent works and how that's a very common thing but i feel like lawrence of arabia there are still battles happening right mm-hmm. um with gone with the wind you get a similar sort of there's a lot more activity going around along around the edges godfather absolutely is nothing but manic action or activity happening mm-hmm. as this descent occurs so slightly different in that it's just this slowly aging man getting more and more disgruntled with the world right? right it's not necessarily a a barn burner in that way yeah and and i think that you know it's it's so uh, truly it's very hard to answer this question for this film all three of our questions really um because based on the nature of this project we whether we'd like to or not are are forced to compare this film to 99 other films and probably you know every other film we've watched for this podcast or seen in our lives right, right. because of yeah. because of this list because of how this has been constructed we have we it's unavoidable you compare this mm-hmm. film to every other film you've seen because it's supposed to be the best one and how does that not set us up for um for for some sort of disappointment right yeah and so i think the thing that i ultimately want to say is that i do care about this film and i agree that it's very important very influential and that that matters and should be recognized but i feel as if it's almost a different category as what i consider to be the best film Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's the best technical it's the best i wouldn't say looking necessarily but a lot's going on directorially what they're doing innovation wise but plot story character development thematization those kinds of things which is no secret i care a lot about those things and less so about film direction yeah i would definitely say something like the godfather does a better job at that casablanca does a better job at that apocalypse now does a better job at that right yeah so it's tough for me personally but i don't begrudge people thinking this is a great movie 
you know, capital G, great. Mm-hmm. It's just not what I would take to be the best movie. Well, and, and I think that maybe this leads us to a, a question that's that's sort of worth thinking about now that we've seen every movie on this list. I mean, what... And, and maybe this is sort of a question that's been looming over this podcast the entire time that we just haven't said. But, I mean, what is it that makes a film great? This is supposed to be the top 100 films, right? The, the best films. The best mm-hmm. representative films of American, you know, film of American industry, right? And But what does that mean? What does that mean for the compilers of this list? And what does that mean for us as consumers of it, right? As people who have who have seen it. Um, and I think maybe what we're running into is that what we have, the sort of um, uh, qualifications that we've made for what makes a film great don't maybe necessarily align with the AFI list. Yeah, I mean, that's abundantly clear in, in some cases. And, and I think it's also, it's personal, right? It's the way in which we are trained as people of the world, right? So I'm more writerly i think in my background you're more dramatic in your background yeah. right just by necessity in our different degrees and interests why we chose to pursue those degrees yeah we have the common interest in the literature obviously as yeah. being both of our phds will be in that but so i i tend to privilege story and character plot development thematization atmosphere everything that i think goes into the the story soup and that's why something like Citizen Kane doesn't do it for me as much as something like Casablanca, yeah. even though dynamically, visually, Citizen Kane does a better job than Casablanca. No, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think that if we're going to go, if we're going to use that as, as our sort of metric, like Casablanca is a is a more interesting film. Uh, you know, its its plot is, 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 is more nuanced and fun, I guess. Maybe not. It's got a triple cross at the end. Right, right, right. And uh, yeah. And this one, I mean, it's again, it's also hard because the the story that we've we've seen here has been played over and over and over in the list, in the list, you know, so it's hard to look at that. And it would be so interesting if we had started with the reverse, if we had gone down the list rather than up. Or even just went chronologically. Right, chronologically, in time. And, and maybe that's a better way to consume this list of movies, is to go through history. But maybe not. I don't know. Maybe not, but I, I do think it would be... I think that could be interesting. It's not something we're going to do. Let's no. be clear about that. <laughs> but, you know, I will return to a lot of these films... And have returned to a few of them, even as the list has gone on, mm-hmm. because I wanted to watch more of it with my wife, or I wanted to watch it with friends, or you know some of the bonus films, especially. Or oh yeah, some yeah, of my yeah, favorite yeah. films. So I turn back to those occasionally. So it's definitely a continued project, right? I'm already thinking about films I want to see outside of this that are also supposed to be classics, but haven't rated on the list in some way. Yeah. So, well, and we have to remember too that. The, the this list was compiled now what 11 years ago um yeah. and so you know the most recent film on this list is lord of the rings there's decades of film that that are just absent here right um and i think especially right now in in 2020 i think we're having a a, a sort of moment of cultural um 
you know, reevaluation where where we're trying to think about like what does it mean for things to be important? What does it mean for people to be important? Right? How how do we sort of um, deal with hierarchies both in our in our own minds and and out in the world? Right? Um, so we look at this sort of canonical list uh, that is that is very heavily male and very heavily white. Um, and it's it throughout the last four years, I mean, we you can kind of track some of the the sort of political things that have happened in this country, right? By the way we've responded to these movies. And we're at this moment of uncertainty and upheaval right now and and reevaluation. Uh, and you know, if we had done if we had watched Citizen Kane five years ago, our feelings might be a little different, right? If we'd watch a lot of these movies, um, years ago, uh, 10 years ago or something like that, it, it, I think that, you know, our readings would have been radically different. Right. Which is, I mean, like how I watched a clockwork horns over 10 years ago and had a radically different yeah. experience than when I watched it, what last year. Yeah. I mean, we've literally enacted this in, in this project. So that in and of itself is kind of a wild thing. Um, so yeah, I had a point and it's gone now. <laughs> well, <laughs> just like that's kind of, I think the best ending point for the podcast is any, right? Right. I had a point and then it went somewhere. So <laughs> that's going to wrap it up for us. Not just this episode, but really all the episodes we've done it. We've accomplished it. Like I said, we will have a rundown. That'll be a few days later after this one yep. goes up, but it's coming. So look out for that. It'll be there. No one is dreading it, certainly. And then, <laughs> then we'll we'll close the book on the AFI. So I want to thank everyone for being here. Yeah. And I have been, have always been, will always be Matt Bazell. And I'm still Ethan Knight. And there, hey, you know what? There won't be spoilers. No, there, there won't. It, it, maybe I, hold on. Can you hear? I need my, wait, you ready? I'm ready. Spoilers. That was my globe. Oh, my snow okay. globe falling. I was like, the, what is happening? My <laughs> snow globe fell out of my hand and I died. <laughs> and my last word was spoilers. Because that's it. There aren't any spoilers. Now you have to go and you, like the characters of Citizen Kane, have to go back and try to figure out what the hell that means. <laughs> There Will Be Spoilers 100 Films 100 Podcasts was created and hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. Matt Bazell produces our episodes each week. Our music was created by the strange and unusual Breakmaster Cylinder who you can find all over the internet. Our artwork was created by Becca Knight who can be found on Twitter at Becca the Knight. And that's Knight with a K. You can follow There Will Be Spoilers on Twitter at SpoilersCast. You can hear more episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like our podcast, you can support us on Patreon for $5 a month at patreon.com slash spoilerscast. Your donation gives you access to two extra bonus episodes a month. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next week for more spoilers. Spoilers.